0: I'm just personally delighted to have Luis Palau here this morning. You, uh, Most of you, I'm sure, know Luis from his crusades in Latin America and then last year in Great Britain and Wales. And uh, this year he's been back to Great Britain, to Scotland, and most recently in Southern California uh, ministering there among uh, Spanish-speaking pe- people in the southern part of, of California. And uh, it's just been good to follow Luis and pray for him and be involved in that way in his crusades. But for me, I just uh, appreciate Luis because he's a, he's a dear friend. He's just a neat guy. I had the, the privilege years ago of serving with him on the staff of a church. He came to Peninsula Bible Church and was a pastoral uh, uh, intern there while I was on the staff. And the thing that impressed me then about Luis was... Just his servant's heart and his tremendous vision. Uh, I think he opened all of our eyes. We saw things that we had never seen before. And on two different occasions, uh, Carolyn and I have very seriously considered going with Luis and Pat and uh, with their organization. We just think so highly of them. The Lord had other plans, and we haven't gotten together yet. But we just deeply appreciate the man and his family and uh, have been praying for Pat. As, she, as you know, he, she, uh, underwent surgery a few weeks ago, recovering nicely. We'll be here this week, but we just want to continue to pray for her. So Luis, it's just, uh, great to have you here and we're looking forward to hearing from you this morning.
1: I'm excited to be at Cole Community again. I, uh, uh some of you are probably disappointed. You probably came to hear Dave Roper and you get stuck with me, but, uh, you can come back some other time. and uh, So you can come back and listen to a decent sermon next Sunday. Uh, today you'll just have to bear with me. But uh, I, uh, I love Dave Roper too. I, we're throwing flowers at each other. We might as well do it well. Uh, I actually do love him and his family. We thought at one point he really was going to join our team when the Lord seemed to be leading because he's such a good Bible teacher. And in our team we really need people who can teach the Bible not just wild, arm-waving evangelists, but uh, the Lord had him to come to Cole, and we were so thrilled when we heard that, because I have been here several times in this chapel, although I'm turned around. I thought the pulpit end should be at that end, but I think I was driven in the wrong way, and I just got turned around. I always felt the pulpit was at that end, but I'm confused. But every time I've come here, the church has been in transition, the first time there was a Minister years ago when I was, most of you kids weren't born, but I was here as a candidate the the first or one of the ministers was going. then I came the second time, and again there was a transition star was coming or going one of the two, and then the next time some other guy was coming or going, so I said to Dave, maybe this is ominous. you are uh about to come or go but i I don't think so at all i I don't think this is a transition time, and I'm really thrilled by what the Lord is doing in this church. I want to say up front how grateful I am and my family for this church has supported us financially for many years, but many of you probably don't even know who in the world I am. You probably read it in the bulletin quickly when they say, let's pray for our missionaries, and my name is hard to pronounce, Luis Palau, and... All that, So you probably have no idea who in the world I am, and I don't blame you, and you probably shouldn't ever find out who I am. But since I'm here this morning, I want to say thank you, because the church has supported me for many years, and there's a check that comes every month, and this helps a lot. And uh, I don't know whether it's faith or foolishness on your part to support somebody you don't know hardly, but I certainly appreciate it, and it's helped us a lot. Now, I've got one wife and four boys from that one wife, and uh, we have uh, been missionaries for 20 years now. We were with an organization that's called Overseas Crusades, and they uh, are a good interdenominational mission. It must be good. I was president of it for two years. And then the Lord led us out, and we formed our own evangelistic team, which is a, a group of about 35, 37 people, uh, we have evangelistic crusades in various parts of the world, mostly in the Spanish-speaking world, although lately also in uh, in Europe, especially the United Kingdom, a little bit in Germany, we've had some campaigns with young people in various parts, and Spain and so on. But uh, mostly we have big crusades in soccer stadiums or ball rings and so on, and then we use a bi- a Bible teaching through radio on a daily basis. We have a 15-minute Spanish thing. In Latin America, and 22 countries, it's just going through the Bible, slowly teaching. And then we have a five-minute daily, which is evangelistic. And we just answer one question from the, from the people who write in every day. I, I aim it strictly at the non-Christian, I think, of men, particularly. And uh, then we have television from time to time in Spanish. And, uh, well, we've had a, a good time preaching the gospel and winning people. And um, my wife, as Dave said, has been very ill. We were really, it shocks you when you discover that your wife has cancer. It's kind of an incredible thing. You know, it happens to the other guy. It never happens to you. And so about six weeks ago, we came back from Scotland, where we had a marvelous six-week campaign in various places. And my wife went to the doctor because we found a lump. And sure enough, the doctor looked at it, and my soul, if it wasn't the real thing, and a fast cancer. When we were in Scotland, she we noticed a little something, and in four weeks it had grown to the size of a, a table tennis ball, and we were just alarmed, you know. So she had major surgery, and uh, the thing had spread to the lymph nodes. So it was a dangerous thing, and she's taking a treatment. And we really thank you for your prayers. And uh, she, we are at peace. A real peace, and I'm not putting you on. We have really learned to trust the Lord. I mean, we've preached it for years, and we've exhorted people and counseled people. And now when it hits you, the real thing is, you say to yourself, now is it going to work for me? You know, although you believe it, but you've got to go through it. And we were thrilled to see in ourselves the peace of God in the midst of it. You know, to really see that all the thing about the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the love of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's true. <laughs> not only is it true because it's revealed, it works. And it's worked in our life. And the other day, my wife was saying, I'm not going to dwell on my wife, but I'll just tell you this because I think it's interesting and has something to it. Uh, she was saying, you know, the whole thing that you're always preaching about body, soul, and spirit, because we are tripartite, and I think as a good Dallas man, you must be too. But anyway, I am. Uh, body, soul, and spirit, uh, my wife was saying, you know, she said, I can feel it in my own person. She said, in my spirit, I am absolutely trusting the Lord. There's never been any questioning whether why this happens to me or why does God allow this or that. That's never crossed our minds, really. She said, in my body, actually, despite cancer and the massive surgery, she said, I really am not in pain. Really, I mean, you almost think you should be, you know, to prove that you've got something. But she said, I don't have any pain. And she healed very quickly of the surgery. But she said, in my soul, I'm really going through it. In know, as your thoughts go wild sometimes, and your emotions, you know, kind of, you cry, and you feel weak, and that kind of thing. But the Lord has given us a lot of strength, and she's going through this treatment that will last a year, and... And so she feels a little a little nausea from time to time it 's chemotherapy and uh, but but we've got a good doctor, and we are trusting the Lord that he'll use the doctor to heal her and uh, This fellow doesn't do a sort of a massive treatment. you know how some people have the hair fall out and all sorts of awful things that the person fears that more than the cancer almost. Well he does it on a smoother approach, and although she has some problems she 's really going through it much better than we expected. So I thank you all for your prayers. And we just come back from Los Angeles, so I'm trying to get back into English. I was having a Spanish crusade. We had uh, 10 days in the sports arena of L.A., and it was a Spanish campaign. You know, there are 4 million Spanish-speaking people in Los Angeles alone. That's probably more than all of Idaho, isn't there? Well, you got 4 million people in the state? Uh, No, see? There are more people, Spanish people in L.A. than the whole state of Idaho. And so we had this campaign. About two million of the Spanish people in LA do not speak English hardly at all, and therefore it was all in Spanish. Uh, We never switched to English at all. We had a we had earphones though for any Anglo's that wanted to hear the things, the proceedings in English. So we had an interpreter go doing it into English, and that was interesting. There were quite a number who came in. Now uh, many people came to Christ, and we were very thrilled. But our team basically has four objectives. First of all. We want to win as many people as we can to Jesus Christ, and as a result, to influence nations for Christ. Secondly, we want to bless the churches. We are church-centered. Even though we're evangelists, we work very closely with the church. And we want to bless the believers, to awaken them up and build them up, and also to see the churches grow numerically. We're committed to growth in, in, the, in numbers as well as spiritually. Thirdly, we always dream of seeing young men go into the service of Christ. So one of our, our third objective is to encourage young fellows and their families to get into the service of Christ and really go to seminary or Bible school or even if they don't go to either one, but to go serve the Lord. And then fourthly, our fourth objective is, I call it, to wave the flag of evangelism because it seems like in many parts of the world uh, people don't get too excited about evangelizing the millions who don't know the Lord. So, well, our fourth objective is to really speak up for evangelism and see people really get turned on to win others to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we haven't stayed in Latin America, though I come from there. My dad was born in Spain, my mother was born in Argentina, but her mother was French and her father was Scottish, and so I have a sort of a mixed background. I came to the States because a fellow by the name of Ray Steadman that I'm sure you've heard about from time to time here came to Argentina, the Lord laid it on His heart. He had me come up here, a businessman paid for the way. I came up to the States, went to Multnomah School the Bible and took the one-year grad course and uh, met my wife, who's an American from Oregon. And uh, then we got married, we became missionaries, we lived in Costa Rica, then Colombia, then Mexico, and uh, we got these four boys, twins who were 17. And 14, Andrew, and 10 is Stephen. And Stephen's with me, although he's in bed right now, I think. But he'll be in here at the 11 o'clock service, or quarter to 11. And uh, our four boys are nice guys. They seem to walk with the Lord. I'm really pleased with the twins and Andrew, the whole lot of them. They're good boys. I hope they stay on the straight and narrow for many years to come. But they seem to be walking with the Lord, and I'm really happy. But, uh, I was in Scotland and I thought you'd be interested in this since it's an interdenominational church and you can attack the Presbyterians then. Not really. But I was in, uh, I was in Scotland where everybody claims to be Presbyterian. They really do. Although in fact, 30% is Roman Catholic because many Irish have come over and so on. But uh, everybody claims it's a joke that everybody's a Presbyterian. And uh, so, but they are not converted. My grandfather claimed he was a Presbyterian, the Scottish uh, grandfather that I told you about. He always, whenever a missionary tried to win him to Christ down in South America, where he'd emigrated, he'd always say, look, I am Scotch Presbyterian. Therefore, I am a Christian. But I always say that he definitely preferred Scotch to Presbyterian because, he, uh, you know, he, uh, he uh, didn't go, uh, he loved Scotch on the rocks. But the Presbyterian thing, he didn't go for too much, uh, the Christian angle. But I was in Scotland and they had this thing about uh, in a little town up north, in some parts way up north where it's bitter cold. Everybody literally is a Presbyterian by name anyway. And they said that this Baptist family moved into town and that the, uh, the grandma died. And so they had to bury her, and there was no Baptist preacher. So they went to the Presbyterian minister and said, Would you bury my grandma even though she's a Baptist and, you know, there's no Baptist in town? So the the Presbyterian said, Oh, that's a theological problem. I'm going to have to cable the stated clerk in Edinburgh. So he sent a cable to the top fellow in Edinburgh, and he said, Can I bury a Baptist? And he got a cable right back that evening, and it said, Bury as many Baptists as you can, (laughs) you know. And the Scots just love that kind of stuff. But um, I was talking to one of one of Billy Graham's uh, Billy Graham's a Southern Baptist and all his associates seem to be Southern Baptists and one of them is called T. W. Wilson and I told him that story and he said, Well he said, you know, the other day somebody asked me this is to defend the Baptist in case somebody walked in here, this uh this TW said the other day somebody asked me, TW, if you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? And he said, I'd be ashamed of myself. That's what I do. <laughs> so I, uh, but you know, it's interesting. If you have Scottish blood in you, you know this is true. The Scots on the outside are very cool and they almost appear cold. But when you get to know them, they are absolutely fantastic. And when they get to laughing and, and when they finally trust you and they cut loose, they are absolutely fantastic people, the most hospitable people in the world. And we feel the Lord is moving in a mighty way. And I wish you'd pray, because next year in May and June, we're going to have a six-week campaign in a stadium in the heart of the city called Kelvin Hall for six weeks. And we need your prayers. And it's going to be nationwide. Every night, they got 18,000 seats. If some of you are on holidays in Europe, you've got to time it and come and help us, because we'll probably need some help. But I wish you'd pray. Now, this morning I've given you enough background. If you are interested, which you probably aren't, but if you are, I, I we got a little magazine in our team called Briefing, and I've got a few copies. I re- honestly do. I only got about fifty. If you want a copy, come forward, and I'll not now, but later, and I'll uh, give you a copy, and you can find out about the team, and find out about this one happens to be on Great Britain, and I got a prayer card with my family that you can pray for us if you feel led. I'd be delighted to have you all praying for us and a little bit more informed on how the team is functioning. However, this morning I did not come to talk about myself. You came to, to think about the Lord, and that's what I want to talk about. Now, I'm aware of the fact that David Roper and many of the associates here are good Bible preachers and Bible teachers. Therefore, I'm not this morning going to try and do a Bible exposition. You get good teaching and good exposition but since I travel quite a bit in Latin America and other parts of the world, I thought that I'd bring a message based on three or four verses, that's all, and illustrated with case studies of things, of things that God is doing in the world today. And uh, I have so much to tell you, I, I should really stay a week here and have a missions conference, but I don't have that, so this morning I've had to select three or four incidents to tell you about. But you know, one of the things that impresses me is this. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs that you don't have to look up. It's my own translation, but it's okay. But it, it is an adaptation because it's, you know, how it is in the Old Testament. But it's it's actually Proverbs 20, um, uh, one, And it goes like this. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. And to me, this verse is tremendous because it speaks of the enormous sovereignty of God to work on people's lives, to work on governors and leaders and presidents and powerful people. And I love that verse. I'll I'll say it again. It says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. I always think of the uh, irrigation in farm areas like I saw when I was flying in here, how in, in Fresno in particular, I always think of how they irrigate over there. They are dry as a desert, but they bring the water from the mountains, and they have all these irrigation ditches, and at certain hours of the day, certain farmers get the water, they open up, and the water comes flushing through there, and and it's so amazing to see it suddenly, then they cut it off at the right time, and I, I feel like the Lord is saying, the heart of kings is like that. It's really in the hand of the Lord. And like a river of water, he makes it go wherever he wants to accomplish his purposes. And God is at work in the world today, as he always has. Even though sometimes when you read the papers or Time magazine or Newsweek or whatever you read, U.S. News and World Report probably here, but whatever magazine you read, you, you say, look at the communists are running the world and, and, uh, and, uh, m- and the Muslims are running the world, And the last one to have control of events is God. Things are just sort of getting out of hand. But they really aren't. The Bible teaches and it's a fact. And if you can look behind the scenes of the news reports and the newscasts, if you can see behind and once in a while the Lord lets us look behind, you suddenly see the hand of God. And God moving and working behind the scenes in ways that never appear and never will appear in the newspapers. And some of it shouldn't appear. But when we get to heaven, and we look back on history, and so to speak, we look at videotapes and replays from God's viewpoint of what has been happening all through history, we're going to say, my soul, I can't believe it. Look at that. I thought the communists were having their day, and behind the scenes, God was using it all to spread His His gospel and also to honor His name. But the verse says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water he turns it wherever he wills now I, I notice some of you are desperately looking for that and i am desperately trying to remember where it is and uh, therefore i'll look at it up. it's proverbs 21:1 just in case you wanted to write it down uh proverbs 21:1 and uh, as i say it's 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 a loose uh, not loose it's it's he, you can check with dave it's okay in the hebrew but it may be just slightly different from your king james or whatever your version you have in your hand. But let me say it again. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. In other words, God is in control of events. Sometimes it may not appear that way. But there's a counter verse to that. And it's a verse in Luke 16:10, where the Lord Jesus says these words. He says, He who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. But he who is faithless in a very little is faithless also in much. That to me is one of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible. Because if you're talking about sin, alright, anybody can talk about sin. But faithfulness in little things. You know, brothers and sisters, I believe that it's biblical and you can see it even today and you shall see it in a few minutes as we look at this thing that God has the heart of kings in his hand. In other words, he directs history, even against the will of those people whose history he's directing, like in the case of the Egyptian pharaoh. The pharaoh was against the Lord, and yet the Lord fulfilled his purpose in every decision that the pharaoh made. The same is true of Pilate. Pilate wanted to destroy Jesus Christ, or at least was an accomplice in it, but God allowed even his wrong decisions to accomplish God's eternal purposes. Which is really a very exciting thought, because it means this, that no matter what men do, God is forever in control of history. And our side of the coin is this. I have to live a few years down here, maybe 30, maybe 70, But I have a few years of life down here in the world. If I am faithful in little, the Lord will make me faithful in much. If I am faithful in little things, where God has put me, the Lord can use that little faithfulness, which may not appear like a big thing in the eyes of anybody else. In fact, it may seem so small that you forget about it. It may seem so small that if somebody tells about it, you're embarrassed of them telling about it. But if you're faithful in little, The Lord uses it to accomplish tremendous things. And I want to get at some illustrations of those two principles. Now, first of all, I was uh, talking to a fellow in Lausanne, in Switzerland, not long ago. He's an Arabic fellow. He's been converted to Jesus Christ. He's an evangelist, and he was also secretary of the Bible societies in the Middle East. I won't mention the country, though some of you may know about it. This fellow is a typical Arab fellow. Now he's about 65, but a very winsome, excited type of a man. Ever since he was a little boy, he was brought up a Christian, one of the few numerically percentage-wise small percentage of Christians in the Middle East. But he loved Jesus Christ, and one of his great dreams as a young fellow was something that impressed me because this has been one of my dreams, and the Lord has seen fit to use me in this area. Uh, He always used to dream as a young boy of winning some head of state to Jesus Christ. But not any head of state, an Arabic head of state, that is, a Muslim, which seemed incredible, way out, ridiculous, you know, one of those things that not even God can hardly do, people think, you know, how who's going to win a Muslim head of state to get converted to Christ, that kind of a thing. Well, he prayed and prayed. He grew up, he became Bible Society Secretary, He passed out thousands of Bibles all over the Middle East, and he witnessed to a lot of people, but never the opportunity seemed to come to witness to a head of state. It isn't easy to get up to those people. But one day he was in a hospital in a certain Middle Eastern country, and I, and and he was uh, putting Bibles by each bed in this hospital. It was a Christian hospital, uh, Protestant, and uh, I think it was Christian too, but it it was Protestant. And uh, uh, he was putting a Bible beside each bed. And as he was leaving the lobby of this hospital, uh, in comes the head of state of one of the most influential states in the Middle East today, big banking center. He comes in with his flowing robes and all his bodyguards and they take over the the hospital. And his heart started going, wow, you know, here's my chance since he was a teenager. Here he is, 60 years old, 40 years he's been waiting for this chance and here comes this head of state. And he said, Lord, what do I do? He began to pray. How shall I approach him? Shall I walk up to him? And as they came in and they sat down and they started registering, evidently this head of state was sick and he was coming to stay in the hospital. He just got all nervous. He ran to the trunk of his car and pulled out a Bible in the language that this fellow spoke of his country. So he pulled out a Bible and he came running back inside and he thought, okay, the bodyguards will probably beat me up. But I'm going to walk right up to him and lay my business before him and give him a Bible. So he dedicated it, wrote into it. His heart still pounding like mad, adrenaline just flowing. He walked up and he said, Your Majesty, or whatever they say in the Middle East, it went all through the thing, you know. And he said, Your Majesty, he said, I want to give you this book. It is the greatest book in the world. I, I, I'm sure you've heard of it. God bless you. I pray for you. I've prayed for you ever since I was a teenager. And the old man said, All the bodyguards came fast, you know. And the old man said, hold it. He says, this is a Bible, isn't it? He said, yes, it is, Your Majesty. He said, all right, when I get settled in my room, I want to talk to you. He almost fell apart, you know, and he he just couldn't believe it. And he said, what's going to happen now? Is he going to kill me, or is he open to the Lord? But he felt a good response. Well, he uh, registered, they disappeared. He finally found what room he was staying and They didn't want to give him the room, but finally... They convinced him and had to make phone calls. I won't give you all the details because I spent all morning on it. But very exciting details. Finally, he went to the room, knocked on the door, and the king said to the two bodyguards, please leave the room. So they left him alone. Here he is. But it took him 40 years of praying and dreaming before it happened. He gets in there and he says, listen, he said, "Uh, my father, who was king before me, he'd been shot. He said, my father used to come to this hospital ever since he was a young man. And he said, once he came back after surgery, he'd been here three months, and he gathered the whole clan, the family, and he said, look, no one can ever find this out because we'll all be dead. But when I was in that hospital in such and such a country, I read the Bible, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he's the only Savior of the world. And I want you all to know that I believe in him. And I want the whole family to read the Bible because this is the word of God. And he said, soon after my father died, he said, I've always wondered what the Bible was all about. But whenever I tried to read it, he says, I can't understand it. Now he said, will you explain what the Bible is all about? Oh, this brother is a father. He just said, Oh, Your Majesty, I'd be delighted, you know. So he read him chapter after chapter, explained the way of salvation, and uh, tried to get him to make a decision for Christ, but he didn't at that point. So he said, Look, come and see me at any time you come to my country. I want you to come to the palace. Come and see me. The door's open. I want you to keep reading the Bible to me. So as soon as he left the palace, a few weeks later, he took a trip. Over, over there, you know, made an excuse. And he went over there and went to the palace, spread the word that he was coming in. He was having a session, the, the king was, and <clears throat> he asked for permission, went to a side room, took 45 minutes and said, read me from the Bible. So he went reading passages from the Bible, he said, come back again any time. So the next time he came, he read the scripture and the fellow received the Lord. Literally, just like you would use the four laws on anybody around here, led him to Christ. So he said, all right, now, this brother said to him, you're going to have to somehow witness for Christ. Otherwise, you're not a real disciple of Jesus. He said, they'll kill me. He said, well, let them kill you. They killed the Lord Jesus, maybe you have to die. Maybe if you die, it'll bring a revolution to this part of the world. And Oh, he said, I'm going to have to think about that and pray about it. But he came back to see him the next time, and the king was in session. From what I gather, they're in session a lot of the time, and people come in and out and whatnot, the crowds of people. It's very different from our kind of... And uh, he came in that time, and he was surrounded by about 50 people asking questions, assistance, and whatnot. And this time he said, gentlemen, he said, here comes one of my best friends in the world. And he introduced this evangelist, you know. And he said, he has been visiting me a lot. He's been reading to me in private, but I am tired of keeping it private. I want him to read to us from the Christian book, the Bible, and I'd like you all to sit down and listen to what God has to say. Well, I tell you, he hasn't lost his head yet. I keep looking at Time Magazine to see when it's going to happen, but he hasn't yet. Now, he isn't going around having campaigns or anything, but he is not hiding the fact that he opened his heart to the Lord Jesus. This brother is, of course, uh, now praying for others in the area, that they will come to Jesus Christ. But, you know, isn't it amazing? Now, most of you probably didn't know that. You probably haven't heard of it. But, you know, it's a fact that the word is spreading. And interestingly enough, when you watch this country, and I don't know that I should tell you, because if he's going to lose his head, I want it to lose it on his own witness, not mine, you know. But... It's a little country with great power. All sorts of banking are going into this place. Anyway, uh, it's amazing to think that this man, a Muslim, ex-Muslim, head of state, was converted by just a humble brother, a Bible Society secretary who preaches the gospel because he was faithful in little. And you know, sometimes you and I think that big things only happen to people who are those special people with big brains and big brazenness and big mouth and, you know, who can just push their way anywhere by shoving and pushing and by somehow making it. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Yes. And like rivers of water, he'll turn it wherever he wills. Yes. But it also says, he who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. And every one of us, if we are faithful where we are, doing what we should do in the name of Jesus Christ, God can take it because he's the master strategist, put it together with what other faithful people are doing it, and have a tremendous impact on a nation or even many parts of the world. You know, one of the amazing things I always think, and and I want to tell you about this on Billy Graham, is that Billy Graham is such an influential person for the glory of God And yet, basically, he's just an old farmer. Now he overplays that, but it's still true that you know he he always says he can't and you haint and he doesn't even speak English decently, you know. And and yet you know the Lord has used him in amazing ways. He he every almost every December he goes to England and he has tea with the Queen of England and gives her the gospel and shares the word and whatnot. And he may say haint and can't, but he's having tea with the Queen. And uh, how many times have you had uh, uh, done that, you know? And and the thing is this. He's a farmer, he wrecks the English language in some ways. But, on the other hand, why does God use him? Because he's faithful in little. That's why. And you know, we always look at the outward picture. We always look at the visible, and you say, oh, it's publicity, or it's big money. I don't believe that at all. I believe that any one of us, men or women, who are here this morning, young kids as well as adults. If we are faithful in little things, and I believe the secret of God opening greater and greater doors and using your life from wherever you are, because none of us can be in more than one place at a time. You can multiply yourself with radio and television, but you're still in one place. You can be used of God with great leverage from that one place that God has put you, and I can too, if we are faithful where we are. And faithfulness often doesn't demand big things. The big things are the result of little faithful acts. It can be right in the home, or it can be wherever God has led us. You know, one thing that has always impressed me about Billy Graham is that he is so faithful and loyal in private, in things that many people don't even know about. For instance, one day we were in Brazil not long ago, about a year and a half in a youth congress, and and Billy Graham said to me, he said, Luis, I'm going to meet with the president of Mexico at a luncheon for young presidents of young millionaires in, in Acapulco. He said, is there anything I can do for you when I talk to the president? And just that week, we had heard that the Mexican government had taken us off the air on radio in Mexico City. So I said, well, Billy, really, if you can talk him into getting us back on the air, it would be terrific. He said, give me the facts. So I gave him a little card, and I thought, he'll forget. He's just being nice. But you know the funny thing? Two weeks later, they had the breakfast in Acapulco. And uh, about two days later, we get a phone call from the Ministry of Communications in Mexico City. What is it you guys are griping about? What's the problem? And they say, well, you fellows took us off the air, and we want to be on the air on our radio program. Okay, okay, when do you want it? What is the thing? In other words, an employee was getting pretty nervous Because the president had called him up and said, what have you done to these guys' radio program? (laughs) And how did the president get upset? Because, and then I saw Billy a few months later, and I said, did you talk to the president? He said, I sure did. He said, after breakfast, I was walking him to his helicopter, and I pulled out your card. And I said, by the way, Mr. President, there's a friend of mine who's got a radio program, and he's been bumped off the air. Do you think you could help him? And the president said, give me that card. And he took it with him. Now, that kind of stuff, you never hear about. Billy didn't have to do that. He could have lost the friendship with the president, just pushing one guy's radio program. But to me, it shows faithfulness in little things. Not a big thing, but a little thing. On one occasion, this was in 1960, we were going as missionaries to Colombia. And in those days in Colombia, there was tremendous persecution against evangelical Christians. If you preach the Bible, you were setting yourself up at least for beatings, persecutions... And for many, many Christians, it was death. There was tremendous persecution. And it was at the time when President Kennedy was becoming president in the USA. And in Latin America, there was this tension between evangelicals and the others. And uh, one day, President Kennedy asked Billy Graham to play golf with him in Florida. And so they began to talk about the second coming of Christ and And then in those days, you remember, there was a big debate. You young kids wouldn't know, but the old-timers will remember there was a big debate. Should a Catholic be president of the USA? It was the first time in history. Now nobody asked that that question anymore. But Kennedy said to Billy Graham, Billy, why do the Protestants hate me? I mean, after all, we haven't done anything to them. And, And Billy said, well, he said, you know, there's a lot of history. And he explained the theology of our differences. In those days, it was much more marked than today. Today... There's a mixture, and Catholics are getting converted and having Bible studies. But in those days, there was a tremendous division. You, all timers, will remember this. And I don't want to offend anybody here. I'm just giving you some history now. And um, so um, there was. Uh, so uh, Billy Graham said, well, and on the other hand, Mr. Kennedy, you know, in South America, there's a lot of persecution, and some of the evangelicals up here get uptight, and they they can't, uh, you know, they can't quite understand it. And Kennedy got all upset. And he said, I tell you, Billy, you guys got me tired. You Protestants are always accusing us of violence. I've had it, you know. He really got upset. And Billy said, well, Mr. President, you you know, uh, why don't you check it out? You've got the sources to check out what's going on in Colombia, for instance. Ask your ambassador. And and Kennedy said, you bet I'm going to check it out. And I'm going to call you up and let you know, too. And they had a a bit of a little hassle, you know. And uh, But, you know, that took courage. When you're talking to the President of the u s you could easily say, "Well, you know, and uh, sugarcoat it, and you know so on. three months later, Billy was going to India, and he had a briefing in the white house and Suddenly, when he was walking across the lawn in the White House, a window flew open, and Kennedy said, "Hey, Billy, come here," so Billy I over, you know and and he said, "Yeah, you remember the discussion in in Miami the other uh, when we played golf and about the situation in Colombia?" And Billy said, yes, sir, Mr. President, I remember he said, by golly, you were right. He said, I checked it out, and this stuff is going on. But he said, I'll tell you something, it's going to stop, and it's going to stop this year, I swear to you. And you know, it stopped. The persecution almost came to us, dead stop in Colombia. We were going as missionaries there. We saw it happen. We didn't know this story. I found out three years ago. I was in San Diego having coffee with one of Billy's board members, uh, a banker from Wheaton. And he said, you know, i got to tell you a story that you probably never heard. I never heard it. We always wondered what was behind the sudden stop in all that violence and persecution. What was it? One brother who was faithful in very little, talking to a president very calmly behind the scenes, but the Lord used it to stop the divisions in Colombia. And you know what? Today, more Catholics and, and others are coming to Christ than ever before. There there are still problems in Colombia, but not those problems. There are people coming to Christ by the thousands. Catholic priests and nuns are having Bible studies all over the place. Evangelicals are leading some of those Bible studies. God has moved, and more people have come to Christ proportionately in Colombia in the last 15 years than any other country, including South Korea, in the world. But where did it all stem from? Many sources. But one of them was old Billy... Very privately, in private, being faithful in little. And you know the question we have to ask ourselves before the Lord is this. All right, I know all this stuff. I have the knowledge of Christ. I have the knowledge of Scripture. I go to a good church. We have a good minister. We love the Lord. But am I faithful in little? And you know, you could have been faithful in little 15 years ago. One of the dangers I feel of middle age, and I'm talking to you all who fall into that category now, and the young ones you can sort of remember it when you get there. One of the problems of middle age is this, that false dignity that comes with a certain age. You know, when you're a teenager or a college kid, of course you can be wild and witness to people and give them the four laws and hit them between the eyes. After all, you're just a kid and nobody's going to be too shocked. But the danger is you get to be 40 or 45 and you get a certain dignity, you know. You own your own house now and you got a little pool and you got some horses on the farm and you're not a kid anymore. And suddenly you've got this false, uh, false dignity. Now you just are very cautious. In fact, you're so cautious... Nobody ever finds out what you're about. You're sort of like a secret agent. Nobody ever knows what you're doing. And you cover it up. And instead of being faithful, even at... And that's the age when we have the most influence in the power of the Lord, if we would be faithful in little. You know, I want to tell you one more. Do I have five minutes or so? Really, I mean that, yes. Uh, one more illustration. I had several, but my time has slipped away, that will show you the fact that... Yes, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Yes, like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. But he usually does it through men and women who are faithful in little, and that the Lord can therefore make them faithful in much. About three years ago, we went to Colombia again in South America, where I lived several years, and one of my boys was born there. And we had dreamt for years since we were young, of giving the gospel witness to the president of Colombia, to have the Bible-believing Christians have a presidential prayer breakfast in the nicest hotel in the country. We dreamt about it since some of those fellows were in the early 20s. We used to pray about it in youth retreats and so on. And that was a country that really opposed Bible Christianity. Well, we prayed about it for years. Finally, a president came to power, Dr. Lopez Mikkelsen is his name, and uh, he was open to the gospel. And uh, so the fellows that we had prayed with 20 years before uh, called me up and they said, Luis, in this presidency, our dreams will come true. Let's really pray about it. So suddenly, one day they called me up from Colombia and they said, we've got it. Such and such a date in September, I think it was, or October, we're going to have a presidential banquet. We're going to call it Banquet of Hope. And so they set it up in the red carpet room of the big downtown hotel called Tequendama fancy place. They invited ambassadors, all the military brass, all the cabinet, the president, everybody was there. And about 300 evangelical, humble believers also, uh, because they felt that they deserved to be there. It was about 2,000 people. They had the television cameras, we're going to take it live nationwide, the radio live nationwide. It was a great moment of victory. Here in the States, it doesn't seem like a big thing because you have them every year and people hardly look at it. But over there, when you've never had the gospel, suddenly to have this is a big event. We were in the middle of a crusade in Dominican Republic, so I had to cut out one night from preaching. One of my fellow team members preached. We got on a special plane and went there. And, you know, it was a thrilling moment to see all the young fellows, now middle age who had dreamt in the early days of, Seeing this happen nationwide, to present the gospel to the nation with the president right there, symbolic of the head of the nation, uh, symbolic of the nation. And here they were, oh, everybody nervous. Now, in Latin America, you never know if the president will show up. You know, he may say he's coming, and then at the last minute say, I'm sorry, you know, I got a liver attack or something, and just not show up. And they'll send some sub-secretary of education, and there you sit, you know, all dejected. But 8 o'clock came and the cameras start popping and the television lights go on and here comes the president with all his bodyguards and it was such an exciting moment he actually had shown up came up there the the poor brothers had never set up a presidential banquet or breakfast or anything, and they made some gross mistakes, which I wish I had time to tell you because it's funny and thrilling. But they sang how great thou art, and they they wanted the people, they wanted the people to sing choruses and all sorts of rather unwise things. But that didn't matter. The president came. Hungry as could be, it was a banquet. He thought we were going to eat first, which is the normal thing to do, and then have the speeches. But the Christian brothers, for some reason, decided to have the speeches first and then the food. And so I had the privilege to give the message, so I was beside the president, and as we stood for the national anthem and everybody was singing the national anthem, he said to me, are we going to eat first? The president said to me, you know. And I said, oh, the President, I think we're going to have the speeches first. And he said, oh, Lord, I'm so hungry. You know, this is going on while the anthem is being sung, you know. And so for, we sat, finally they made another mistake. If I had time to tell you the mistakes, so you won't ever make them. But they had five politicians speak before me. Each one was supposed to take five minutes, and if you know politicians, you saw the Republican Convention on television, they go on and on, you know, and it was supposed to be banquet of hope. These politicians took the occasion to blast the president since they had him there, and it was a disaster. By by the time my turn came to speak, I thought, Lord, what am I going to do? First, the time had run over. The waiters were waiting practically with the bread in their hands to put on the table. Well... The Lord gave wisdom and I just preached the gospel for about 12 minutes. Got a bunch of verses, no quotations from Lincoln or anything. I just said I'm gonna just get the word and get it over with, you know. And the Lord really blessed it. But you know, we sat down to eat and we had given the president a Bible commentary and uh, a Bible dictionary. Just to give him something different because people always give him Bibles and they have piles of them. So we began to talk and he began to look through the commentary. And he said, he said, what was the name of that field where Judas hung himself? And do you know that I could not remember? I thought, who cares? You know, I thought to myself, oh, what field is... But for some reason he was interested, and I couldn't remember I I, I suppose most of you couldn't remember here, unless David has taught you that. And I, I said, oh, Mr. President, just give me a second. And I asked the woman beside me, who was a politician, a Protestant... And I said, What was the feel where Judas you know was and she said, oh, I don't know. So it went all the way down the line, you know, till there was a the the pastor of the first Baptist church was at the end of the table and finally came back. I killed him, I killed him, I killed him. And I said, Mr. President, it it, it was I killed him. I said, I already found it. So he had all and I, I said to myself, now how did he know and what was his interest? I don't know what his interest was. But we got to talking. And and he said to me, you know, Palau, what Colombia needs, it needs a big shot in the arm of the Calvinistic ethic. And I thought, where does he know this? You know, because Calvinistic ethic, maybe some of you don't realize what it is, but it's biblical ethic preached by John Calvin, an old-timer from Switzerland and France. And so I said, well, that's right, Mr. President, that's what we are doing. We evangelicals want to see people reborn with a shot in the arm of... The ethic which comes when you receive Christ and gave the, he said, "Colombia needs a big bath of the Calvinistic ethic. And I said, that's right, you know, and we got to, and finally I got intrigued and I said, Mr. President, where did you find out about this Calvinistic ethic? He said, hey, he says, if you don't tell anyone, I'll tell you. He, he was facetious. I said, w-, he said, you know, my mother was an American. And I said, no, I didn't know he's the president of Colombia, and his mother was an American. And he said, furthermore, she was a Presbyterian. I said, I can't believe it. He said, she was. And, and, and he said, you know, when I was a little boy, at night before she put me to bed, she would always read the Bible to me. And from time to time she would say, now Calvin said this, and Calvin said that. And he said, when I came to college, I thought, who in the world is Calvin? So he said, I began to read about him. And he said, my PhD thesis, in fact, he said, I wrote around the subject, the influence of Calvinism on a capitalist society. So he, I said, did you read his sermons? I said, I read the whole lot of them, he said. I said, that's more than me. And, but you know what impressed me was this, and I'm going to close because unfortunately the time is gone. But you know what impressed me was this? The mother's not with the Lord. She made a, committed a sin in the sense that she married a non-Christian. But in spite of that, she was faithful in little. She was faithful in teaching her little boy the Bible. Her little boy happens to become president of the country years later. And the Lord uses that little boy, now president, to open up the nation to the gospel in a mighty way. And I want to tell you that the scripture is still true today, that he who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. But he who is faithless in the little things turns out faithless also in the big things. And the Lord is eager to use every one of us. And every one of us here this morning could be used of God, if it's His will, to touch nations, if we saw that the heart of kings is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, He just turns it wherever He wills. But He usually does it through men and women who are faithful in little, which then He in turn can make them faithful in much. And you know, that's my message for this morning, that you and I should search our hearts and say, Lord, am I today being faithful in little? Am I today faithful to you? I used to be faithful at one time. Am I still faithful? I used to do the little things that nobody saw. Am I still doing them? And one of the dangers of middle age is that you begin to be faithless in the little things. Oh, overall, you're clean. But in the little things, you become faithless. And unless you're faithful in little, the Lord can never make you faithful in much in the things of God. The Lord bless you.
0: I told you. And you get that feeling that your eyes are open, perhaps for the first time, and then you're stabbed here, but not with guilt but the sense that we have all the power that's necessary to do the thing that God has called us to do. And as Louise said, we need to ask ourselves the same question. What are we going to do here in terms of our neighborhood and our legislature, our schools, our communities? In our discipleship class last week, we took took out a calculator and did a little bit of simple mathematics and concluded that If each one of us this year led one person to the Lord and followed them up to the point where at the end of that year they would lead someone else to the Lord, within 15 years we would evangelize the city of Boise and with 19 years the state of Idaho. So it's possible, you see, and all the power that's necessary is available to us in an indwelling Lord. Now, we just need to ask ourselves, what's the next step for us as an individual? We've had some some people share with us over the past some of the things they've done. One woman I know has invited some of her neighbors to a simple little lunch that she put together and and then uh, shared with them her relationship with the Lord. Another man that I know who has a ranch up on the river regularly feeds the float trips that come through. He feeds them breakfast and uh, this summer, he began a little church service up on his uh, porch, and after the uh, breakfast, he invites the the people on the float trip to come up, and and they have a little Bible study in the Book of Philippians, and he's seen seen a tremendous interest on the part of these people, and hearts being opened up to the gospel. So our question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What part do I have in this uh, in in fulfilling the Great Commission? Now, normally what we do at this time is give you a chance to respond a bit and share some of your own thinking, perhaps ask questions, but uh, this morning we don't have time, so let's do this. Let's spend the next five minutes praying for Luis and Pat and their family, and that they'll get the badly needed rest that uh, that they need right now, and that the Lord will give us wisdom to know what the what the next step is for us as individuals, and as a body of believers. And I'd like to ask you to stand right where you are, those of you that feel led to pray, and uh, pray loud enough so that all of us can hear us and we'll spend a bit of time depending, sharing our needs, and, and counting on the Lord for His resources and His wisdom. All right, let's do that now. Thank you so much for what we've heard this morning, and for the reminder again that we have a part to play in and the thing that you're doing in the world in bringing about redemption and setting things right and healing lives and marriages and just putting everything back into into order. And we want to be a part of that plan. Thank you for the instruction that we've received and the incentive to believe you to accomplish whatever it is you have in mind for us. Help us to see people as you see them, take away our fear and our pride and our Tendency to protect ourselves and to think in terms of our own interests and help us to give ourselves away and to be sensitive to the needs of people around us and be bold and loving in our proclamation of truth. We're just very grateful that we've had this good word again. We want to count on you to fulfill it in your, in the unique way you have in mind for us. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.